I always hear guest preachers say that they are humbled, honored, and thankful to be invited to preach God's word. And I always wonder how genuine they are really being. Or if saying that was simply a requirement written somewhere in the depths of the BCO, chapter 12, maybe subsection 3. But I checked and it wasn't there. It was in fact in subsection 4. So as I was given this opportunity to preach, I quickly realized how humbling it is to stand before you with the task of preaching the very words of God. And I do feel honored that you would trust me with this responsibility. And as I prepared to preach, I grew increasingly thankful to God our Father for his beautiful restoration plan. So I too can now stand here and say it's humbling and an honor, and I'm thankful to get to share this time with you. So let's pray that God would bless our time together. Dear Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name we come to you this morning longing to be changed and to be like you, asking you to open the eyes, to, asking you to open our eyes to your truth, and asking you to be powerful in this place. Give us clarity of thought and a thirst for your word. Put our minds at ease and allow us to bring our sins, our troubles, our distractions, and lay them before you, asking you to forgive and comfort us and focus us on what is eternal and of everlasting significance. Use me and all my frailty and weakness and limitations. Keep me from error, and may your word be on display today. Through Jesus, the Lord of all. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at the first half of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically verses 1 through 10. Paul, the author of 2 Corinthians, has a unique relationship with the church of Corinth. After starting the church in Acts 18, he remained there for 18 months preaching and teaching. Then he left to continue his missionary journeys, but he soon received a report about the church that was not good. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul called the church out on a few minor things, including divisions in the church. Sorry. Sexual immorality lawsuits, divorce, idolatry, and a lack of love. Well, how do you think the Corinthians responded to this? Sackcloth, ashes, sorrow, shame, repentance? No way. They responded the way you and I do when, we, when someone calls us out on our sin. Disagreement, denial, and with questions slash accusations regarding Paul's ministry. In particular, they flipped the script on Paul, and they questioned his authority as an apostle. And they asked why, if he truly was an apostle of God, he was enduring so much suffering and opposition in his ministry. Well, after a painful visit and a letter written between 1 and 2 Corinthians, this relationship between Paul and the church was largely mended. And it's in that context that Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And so he spends the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians further reconciling with the church and then answering their questions about suffering in ministry as he describes the suffering of Christ in the message of the cross in the better covenant mediated through Jesus. So primarily, he wanted them to understand the truth that through suffering in Christ there is comfort and that through death there is life. So this is where we find ourselves, trying to understand along with the Corinthians and all believers, past, present, and future, why we can have hope now in the future 
glory as we live surrounded by afflictions, suffering, conflict, and death. So I'd love for us to see in God's word today that this pattern, the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ is a concrete, sure, absolute, take it to the bank, count on it, foreshadowing of the rhythm of your life and my life in Christ. There will be suffering, there will be death, and there will be a resurrection for all of those in Christ. So this is where we pick up with our text. Join me as I read our text. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. I encourage you to put God's word in front of you. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we won't be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is God's word. So please indulge me for about four minutes as I share a story with you. So once upon a time, there was a town of tent dwellers who lived in Tentville. And being rightly named, they lived in a village full of tents. And each tent dweller had their own tent, which held all their possessions and provided them shelter. The people of Tentville never left their village for fear of what lay beyond its borders. And a young girl named Huayoyu had an especially lovely tent that she cherished. One day, she was approached by a tent dweller whom she recognized yet had not seen for many years, named Emman. He told her all about his recent journey, where he inexplicably left Tentville and journeyed for years to a land called Exchange, where there lived a great king, and where he was able to trade his tent for a castle filled with food, friends, and every good thing he could imagine. He told her of the difficulties of the journey, the rough terrain, the villains along the path, the hard roads, the seemingly endless nights, the decaying of his tent, and how often he was tempted to give up and die somewhere between Tentville and Exchange. Yet he persevered, and when he arrived at Exchange, to his surprise, he met a tent dweller who was living in the central castle of the city Exchange. His name was J.E.S.U.S. Sure enough, J.E.S.U.S. took M.A.N.'s tent and replaced it with a large castle filled with food, friends, and every good thing he could imagine. So enjoying the beauty of exchange and the goodness of J.E.S.U.S., M.A.N. was determined to come back to Tentville and convince others to leave it behind and go see J.E.S.U.S. to trade in their tent for a castle filled with food, friends, and every good thing one could imagine. Huayoyu, who loved her tent, thoughtfully considered and questioned whether M.A.N. was telling the truth. 
But once MAN showed her a selfie on his iPhone with him and JESUS in front of his castle, she grew determined to go see JESUS. She found that MAN had not exaggerated the difficulty she would find on the journey. After years of turmoil, discouragement, attack, frustration, affliction, depression, she found that she was weary and that her tent was damaged and incapable of providing her with the comfort and protection it once had in Tentville. Sure enough, after years of travel, she arrived at Exchange. And as she peered at JESUS's castle in the center of the city and the surrounding castles all around, she grew anxious, hoping JESUS would accept her torn, ripped, and decayed tent in exchange for a castle, as MAN had promised. Sure enough, even before knocking on the castle gates, Kwayohu was invited into the castle in the city center as JESUS personally showed her all around his dwelling. Kwayohu was surprised at the beauty all around her and quickly realized that she was in the presence of a great king in his kingly abode. She was especially surprised when she reached a small room at the top of the tallest tower of the castle. And unlike the splendor and glory of the other rooms in the rest of the castle, this room had only a pile of tattered, bloody remains of fabric lying on the blood-soaked floor, wooden floor. Wyoyu did not understand what she was seeing, and as she approached the pile, she saw that the fabric was the remains of a tent. J.E.S.U.S. looked at her fondly and said, Yes, this is my tent, and my journey here was especially burdensome and difficult, and my tent suffered severe damage. Wyoyu examined the frayed fabric, and felt a deep melancholy. Even I, the ruler of exchange, at one time traded in my tent for a castle. So I know, my child, what it is you have been through and what it is that you currently seek, and I'm able to provide you with what you have journeyed for. He held out both of his hands, and in one hand he took her tattered tent, and in the other hand he took the hand of Huayoyu and walked with her to her castle, which was filled with food, friends, and every good thing she could ever imagine. Now, I share this story because as I studied this passage, the image of exchanging tents for castles helped me consider what Paul is getting at in this passage, and I hope to point back to this later. So again, today we're going to be talking about what Paul is saying happens when we die, and why it is critical to understand it in the, to inform us on how we now live. Again, we'll be discussing death, everyone's favorite topic, and how it informs us on how we live. So let's work through the text. This is a two-minute Cliff Notes version. Please don't get bogged down on the details or whether you agree with my translations or not. Just try to keep up, and then we'll get deeper into it. Okay? So verse 1. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the translation, when our body is destroyed, meaning we die, we get a new body made by God and not by man. Verse 2 and 3, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on the heavenly dwelling, our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Translation, while we are alive on earth, we suffer and long for our heavenly body so that when we die, we won't be in this bodiless or disembodied spirit state. 
verse 4. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. Translation, while we are alive on earth, we long, not because we want to be bodiless, but we long for earthly bodies to be upgraded to heavenly bodies. Verse 5, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Translation, this is what God is preparing us for, and he's given you his pledge, his promise to accomplish it in the Holy Spirit. Verse 6 and 7. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Translation, so we stay encouraged on earth even though we can't yet see God, for we continue trusting we will one day see him. Verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Translation, Yes, we stay encouraged, though we would rather be dead and with God. Verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Translation, here or in heaven, we long to make God happy. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due, due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Translation, let's deal with that later. Okay, so pretty simple. When you chop it up, basically, Paul wants to be with God, plain and simple. And preferably, he wants to be with God with his new, resurrected, heavenly body. But if he must, he prefers to be with God without his body when compared to staying here on earth. So three options with God in the new heavens and the new earth with his resurrected body, two, with God in heaven, no earthly body, no heavenly body, awaiting the resurrection, three, here on earth with an earthly body. He prefers the first option, then the second option, then the third option. One, with God in body, two, with God and without body, three, earth as we're experiencing it now. So notice something. Paul is saying that what you and I are currently experiencing is the worst it's going to be for us. Praise God. It only gets better from here. So now why is Paul going into all this, the here, there, body, no body thing, especially in the midst of this dispute and his current reconciliation with the Corinthian church? Remember, he wants them to know that the suffering they said invalidates his apostleship is in fact the suffering that is inherent to the Christian experience as modeled by Christ in the New Covenant. That when we live a life with our eyes fixed on what is unseen and not on what is seen with the aim of pleasing God, verse 9, we will suffer as Christ did. And specifically, he wants them to know that all that suffering, suffering is endurable without losing heart because we know of the glorious resurrection modeled by Christ and then extended to us in the form of our resurrected bodies. So let's quickly look at how Paul describes his suffering for Christ. Chapter 1, verse 5, he says that he shares abundantly in Christ's suffering. In verse 8, his afflictions in Asia burden him beyond his strength. 
causing him to despair of life itself. And then he thought he was receiving the death sentence in verse 9. In chapter 4, verse 7, Paul says he's carrying a treasure, the gospel, in a jar of clay, a weak body, and that he is afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, struck down, and carrying the death of Jesus in his body. He says that outwardly he is wasting away. Then later, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he boasts like a madman about his labors, his imprisonments, his near-death beatings, five times receiving 39 lashings, being beaten with rods, stones, shipwrecked, experiencing dangers from rivers, robbers, Jews, Gentiles, dangers in the city, wilderness, sea, from false brothers, working in toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger, thirst, and cold. And then he says this, not to mention the daily pressures and anxieties from all the churches in my charge. Wow. So how on earth does he say light, momentary affliction, just before our text today in 4 verse 17. Shouldn't Paul be saying, enough, God. I'm doing my best here. Take it easy on me. Don't you know I have limits? I know that's what I do. How about you? You should have heard my inner dialogue with God this week. It's truly pathetic. God, my job is too hard, and my kids won't be perfect. Parenting is just too demanding. I know I need to give more time to my wife, but what about time for me? I can't do everything you're putting in front of me. I just can't. And of all weeks, God, this is the week I have to preach a sermon? I mean, can't you convince Pastor Wood to stop having babies already? (laughs) And to top it all off, God, not only did my new memory foam pillow give me a neck ache last night, but yesterday, Panera Bed forgot to put bacon on my bacon, Turkey Bravo. How much will I have to endure, God? I mean, come on, it's embarrassing. So what is it that Paul knows that I struggle to understand? It's resurrection. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that when this tent, this body is destroyed, we get a building from God. That is a heavenly body from God. Paul mentions this in 1 Corinthians 15, which we read earlier, in 2 Corinthians, and in 1 Thessalonians. Now maybe this heavenly body doesn't surprise you, But for me, it gives me pause and makes me think, are you sure, Paul? Because what you seem to be saying is that we are going to be getting a new body, like an actual new body, without the curse of the fall, and we're going to live in the new heavens and a new earth, and that God is going to make his dwelling place with us? I don't know, Paul. That doesn't quite jive with how heaven was described to me in Sunday school. You know that perfectly undefined, nebulous, intangible existence that was sort of not very solid, probably somewhat transparent and perhaps legless, but maybe we'd have arms, and maybe if we were lucky we could play some sports or do a couple things that were fun. But don't get your hopes up too much because it's probably not going to be as cool as golf is. Isn't that what you mean, Paul? Because you seem to be indicating that God isn't yet done with his design for humanity and creation. That with resurrection comes restoration and a perfecting of his original good design. Church, I wonder if you have experienced what I have, which is a sense of attachment to this world and an uneasiness or uncertainty of whether you're really going to like heaven. As I thought about this week, I think a lot of the uneasiness is actually healthy. I think its root 
is in the fact that we do, in a lot of ways, agree that what God made here on earth and in humanity, his design overall as it is, is as it says in Genesis 1. It's good. We like God's design here on earth. We enjoy his creation. We bond with animals in the outdoors. We like music. We like to create and play and laugh and have fun. We like the fellowship with friends, and we like the solace of being alone. We enjoy science and learning and reading and the arts and testing, testing the limits of our intellect and our bodies. Our enjoyment of this world does not need to keep us from longing for heaven. It should, in fact, as Paul says, have us longing for our heavenly bodies which will inhabit the new heaven and the new earth. And just as we enjoy this world, at the same time, there is an undeniable brokenness in the here and now. All is not right. Verse 2 through 4. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Here Paul uses the same word for groaning, stenazo, hopefully I'm not butchering that, which means grief, sighing, murmuring. It's the same word he uses in Romans 8, when he says that the whole of creation is groaning and in the pangs of childbirth. And not just creation, Paul says, but we ourselves are groaning inwardly as we eagerly await adoptions. And listen to this. This is Romans 8. And the redemption of our bodies. Who amongst us needs to be convinced that something is not right here on earth. Our lives are a mess on a micro level. Sin, addiction, disability, disease, illness, death, relational strife, depression, suffering marriages, undesired singleness, infertility, overemployment and underemployment, unemployment, and the loss of loved ones. We do what we don't want to do, and we don't do what we want to do. Parents, your kids won't listen and obey, and kids, your parents won't stop losing their tempers and yelling at you. Sometimes it could seem like we can't do anything right or nothing good is coming our way. Even the church struggles to unite under the headship of Christ. And creation, too, is groaning. There was a tornado close by to us last week. Natural disasters leading to deaths in the hundreds of thousands in Asia. Hunger in huge populations in Africa. Famine, disease, and so much more. It can be truly depressing and overwhelming. And what does Paul say? We groan, being burdened, longing for the heavenly body and for our earthly bodies to be swallowed up by life. That is, our heavenly bodies and ultimately God's restored world. So I think now would be a good time to look at the subtle distinction Paul is making when, descri when describing being with the Lord. Clearly, in verse 1 and 2, Paul wants to be apart from the groaning of his earthly body and to be with the Lord while receiving the building made by God, his heavenly body. In verse 3, Paul says that he wants the heavenly body so that he won't be found naked or without a body. But at the same time, in verse 8, Paul is saying he'd rather be without a body and with the Lord. So to simplify it, Paul is saying, I want to be with God, 
Would I prefer to have my new heavenly body than to be naked and without my body, my new body? So why this difference? I mean, does it really matter, Paul, if we have a body as long as we're with God? I think Paul is absolutely saying, yes, it matters. And let's consider why. Here's 1 Thessalonians 4. This is what Paul tells us. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Do you see this? Jesus' resurrection sets the pattern for the resurrection of believers during his return. For this we declare, this is continuing in 1 Thessalonians 4, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. You see, Paul is thinking more globally than just his own comfort and preferences. He knows that when the dead are raised, Christ's return and culminating reign is imminent. Revelations 21 says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. You see, this is the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel through the church. He will wipe away the tears from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, or crying, or pain, or the former things, for the former things have been passed away. You see, if Paul was only concerned with himself, then yeah, the difference between being with God, with or without his body, is probably not that big a deal. But he knows that when he is clothed, clothed with his heavenly body, that Christ has returned. All others have been raised from the dead. God is making his dwelling place with man. His promise of being God over us is fulfilled. Sin and death have lost their power, and the former things are passed away. There's no more pain. There's no more sorrow or crying for those found in Christ. Finally, what was lost in the garden back in Genesis 3 is regained in Revelation 21 and 22 with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth. And the river of life, which flows through the new Jerusalem, nourishing, this is cool, the tree of life, which in turn heals all the nations. Amen. You see, Paul says in verse 5 that this global, complete, heavenly restoration is the very thing that God is preparing his church for. And we have a pledge, a promise, the Holy Spirit, that he is going to accomplish it. So, of, Paul, of course, Paul is going to say that he is of good courage in verse 7 and 8, and that he would rather be with the Lord than away from the Lord, because he understands our scripture reading from earlier this morning, because he wrote it in his first letter to the Corinthians, that if Christ did not rise from the dead, our faith is worthless, and our sin would still own us, and that if Christ did not raise from the dead, those who have died are dead, dead, period. There is no more. But Paul says, But in fact, 
Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. <clears throat> but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after, after destroying every rule and power and authority. Paul states this order clearly. First, Christ conquers death and resurrection, being the first fruits. And praise God, this has happened already, and we celebrate it every Easter. 2A, Christ returns, and then 2B, the dead in Christ are raised to life. 3A, Christ destroys every rule, power, and authority, and then delivers 3B, the kingdom, to God the Father. Do you hear this? Paul is saying that he is longing for his heavenly body. It's not just for his gain, but it's for the restoration of all of creation and the culminating rule of God the Father. This is why Paul can say what he says. You see, Paul was changed pretty dramatically on the road to Damascus. He met Jesus, his sins were forgiven, and he was given a calling for Christ. But he knew that his spiritual restoration was only one part of the equation and that his bodily restoration was vital to understanding Christ's complete ministry. And see, I think unlike Paul, you and I get stuck here, or at least I get stuck here. We have so much reduced the gospel to a simple soundbite of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive our sins and give us eternal life that we lose sight of the big picture of Christ's restorative gospel mission for all of creation to the garden and back to Adam. So hear this, Christ did die with you in mind, but he also died with all of creation and all of humanity in mind as well. He died specifically with Adam in mind and the awful consequences of sin, which would cost him his unbroken fellowship with his father, it would have him experience betrayal, beatings, mockery, and death. He died knowing that rising from the dead would break death's power. It would make a mockery of death and make it possible for him to return a conquering king, destroying every rule and every authority and every power. So next time you share the gospel or you preach the gospel to yourself, maybe add that little bit to the end. Christ died to forgive me of my sins and give me eternal life. And to conquer Satan, restore the entire world to its rightful created state, grant all in Christ new heavenly bodies, and in an amazing future with God as our rightful king, in a place where there is no sorrow, guilt, shame, pain, for all those who find themselves in Christ. Amen. Let me get into character here. You see, we had a need for God to intercede when we didn't have a plea because we ate from the tree. Praise God, grace is free to all who believe, for you and for me. Now we can all agree on the ministry of the three who restores the wonderful tree when he returns for all he set free.
Now that's good stuff, man. You see, <laughs> you see, God is ushering us back to the garden where we can return to sweet, unbroken fellowship with him. And this time, we won't screw it up. Oh, and consider this. He did this when he had every right to just wipe us out for continued rebellion. Thank you, Jesus. This overarching Genesis to Revelation truth is what drives Paul to say that wherever and whenever, in or out of the body, at home or away with the Lord, his aim is to please God. Verse 9. And it's in this context in which he can say that anything he has to endure in this life for the sake of Christ is light and momentary. And this is why he does not lose heart, though outwardly he's wasting away. He knows inwardly he is being renewed day by day, and that when Christ returns, things that were unseen, seemingly unreal, far off, will be more real than anything we have yet experienced. You see, if we don't see the town of exchange as a worthwhile dwelling, and J-E-S-U-S as a worthy king, and we're satisfied with our tattered, temporary tents in Tentville, then the journey from Tentville to exchange is just too costly. And it's likely going to consume us, and the suffering we experience in this life will not seem momentary, temporary, or like it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. It's just going to seem cruel, and burdensome, and crushing, and as an attack on the tents that we love, and if we look at our tents, these transient, temporary, corruptible dwellings as central and primary and worthy of devotion, then we likely never leave Tentville. Or we struggle to keep moving towards the city exchange when suffering, affliction, and persecution inevitably come. But if we look at our tents and groan for castles in the presence of Jesus, we can endure suffering and persecution knowing that with the coming of our castles comes an entire restored city, a resurrected king and peace with God, as originally designed and intended. I think this passage is amazing. Because to put it crudely, Paul is setting the example and giving those who are bought with the blood of Christ license to want something better than we have right now. He's telling you to yearn, to groan, to desire more, and to seek a king and a reward. Paul knows the reward he is going to receive for his faith, and he's perfectly okay wanting it, longing for it. And he uses that longing and the reality of his coming reward to frame how he now lives. I think I can learn at least three things from Paul here that would pretty radically transform my life. First would be to understand that it's okay to delight in the reward of my faith. Namely, it's okay to be excited and expect to have an eternal existence in new bodies on an amazing new playground in unbroken fellowship with God and with each other. In fact, 
in Hebrews, the author says the first, that first, believing in God's existence, and second, believing that God is, I love this, a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It's how we exhibit the kind of faith required to what? To please him. See, sometimes I foolishly think that there's like bonus Christian health points for me if I just love God without even thinking about what I get out of the deal. Like I'm a better Christian if I'd love God even if there was no reward. But that is nonsense. God wants me to see him as a rewarder, worthy of putting trust in and faith in and worthy of praising because of his generosity, love, compassion, mercy, and his promise of giving us a really great future on a new heavens and a new earth in new bodies as he restores all of creation. Praise him. Second thing to learn. I think longing for something better than we currently have here on earth would cause me to live far more radically for Christ in this life. I'd be much less concerned with the sufferings of the day in and day out, with health and wealth and comfort and the hundreds of other things I Google ten times a day. Do you know that I compulsively check my bank accounts like five times every day? What is that? What, is, what am I putting my security in? Pray for me. I'd be more generous. I'd give of my time and energy. I wouldn't fear giving up things that I think I'm going to miss when I die. I'd probably be more patient with my children, and I'd be much more interested, like Paul, in kingdom mission and this reconciliation ministry that he goes on to describe right after this in chapter 5. I'd act on my desires to see those I love in fellowship with Christ. I'd learn Arabic and learn how to minister to Egyptian Muslims who live all around me. The third thing I'd learn, I think I would take much more seriously the coming judgment described in verse 10. And I would desire for my works to show a clear evidence of my faith and the transformative power of Christ's grace and the Spirit in my life. This coming judgment in verse 10 should make us grateful if we are in Christ and have experienced the transformation that comes with the Spirit. Take time for a few moments and consider this. Consider your conversion. Consider how you have seen evidence of the Holy Spirit in your life. Do you feel shame and guilt over sin? Do you seek repentance when you're wrong? Do you shudder at who you'd be if Christ did not put his truth in you years ago? Do you remember a time when actions that today you consider deplorable had no sway over your conscience previously? Do you know that this transformation is in and through Christ? I see that evidence in my life, and I'm still a disaster. I know the man I was before Christ, trapped in sin, enslaved, cruel, two-faced, and I didn't even know it. But because God has given me his spirit, and Jesus has authored and is perfecting my faith, I can read verse 10 and rejoice in the commendation and declaration of Christ. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundations of the world. And I get a heavenly body. But for those of you who cannot testify to the work of the Holy Spirit that is in you, 
Consider the words of Jesus in the final judgment. Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. It's sobering. Do not neglect the call of the Lord. He is calling to you. Heed his voice and turn to Christ and live both now and in the heavenly body when he returns. This judgment is likely the judgment where Jesus looks at the evidence of our lives on earth and judges. Well done, good and faithful servant, or depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. Of course, Paul here is not affirming that our works are what save us because he is the one that is consistently telling us it is by grace you have been saved through faith and not by works. But he is affirming what James tells us, that faith without works is dead. And on that day when Christ judges, may our works point to the transformed life that was bought by Christ and lived through the Spirit. I'd like to close reviewing a song by Shailin, a modern-day theologian. He wrote a song called Jesus is Alive, and it's really a pretty catchy song. He basically runs down a list of notable historical figures, and then he concludes... They're all dead. Then he consistently sings, but Jesus is alive. And it sounds like this. Plato is dead. Socrates is dead. Aristotle and Immanuel Kant are dead. Nietzsche and Darwin are dead. However, Jesus is alive. Buddha, he's dead. Muhammad is dead. Gandhi and Haile Selassie are dead. Elijah, Muhammad is dead. However, Jesus is alive. And the song can really sleep on you because the hook is so catchy and somewhat jarring, you don't quite appreciate what he says in the verse. So I'd like to read you verse 3, and that's how we'll close today. Through faith in Christ, we've been saved from hell. Because he's risen, it means we'll be raised as well. In glorified bodies fit for the new earth, for now we participate in the new birth. The universal reality of the true church with resurrection power, watch the Spirit do work. United with Christ, we reside in his light, abide in his might, keep in stride as we fight the pride in our lives, the lies and the spite. We strive to be wise as he guides us through the night. He'll chide and he'll slice, recognize that he's right. His brightness inside lights our eyes and it's tight. He decided to die to wash white all our strife. His life was the price to delight in his wife. He told death's psyche just to rise like a kite. All eyes on the Christ. Let's prize him tonight. Amen, church. So now is the time where we uh, transition to our confession of sin. And... Uh,